And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Doing pretty good because it's a, a night that everyone should be watching horror movies. Hmm. Yes. It's, it's Valentine's Day. That's right. And you should watch a horror movie with your loved one so you can curl up and get real nice and snuggly. Yeah, while, you know, that adrenaline from all the screaming starts pumping and all those, uh, like, deep-seated instincts kick in. And, you know, <laughs> next thing you know, you're making out because horror and romance go hand in hand. This is true. Uh, and also horror and deeper, more primal things than romance. Like the urge to murder. You know, that wasn't what I was thinking of, Sarah, oh. but uh, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I will watch myself today. Well, what are we watching today? Uh, so today, Sarah, we are watching The Werewolf from 1956, directed by Fred Sears. It's been a while since we've had a werewolf movie, I think. A very long while. Like, a good traditional werewolf who wasn't like a half-man, half-ape, yeti-missing-link, evil scientist kind of thing, like Neanderthal Man. I think the last one, I mean, overall, chronologically, in Hollywood, would have been Lon Chaney in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein back in 1948. Okay. I, I don't think we've had a traditional werewolf since. Now, to tell the story of the movie The Werewolf... Uh, we must reacquaint ourselves with producer Sam Katzman. Ah, Katzman. Born in New York in 1901, this film producer made his name producing cheap feature films for Poverty Row Studio Monogram in the 1940s, including nine pictures with Bella Lugosi, such as Invisible Ghost, Bowery at Midnight, The Corpse Vanishes, The Ape Man, Voodoo Man, and Return of the Ape Man. In 1948, he left Monogram for Columbia Pictures, where he produced the serial Superman and its sequel, Adam Man vs. Superman, in 1950, switching his focus from, like, horror, thriller, urban crime stuff to action-adventure movies, such as his Jungle Jim series <laughs> uh, starring Johnny Weissmuller and a variety of, like, cheap swashbucklers, including, like, a Robin Hood movie called Prince of Thieves. Tons and tons of this sort of stuff. Uh, he did westerns, action films. He also did these Arabian Nights-style adventure films, which he referred to as tits and sand pictures. Oh, boy. Uh, around the Real winner there. <laughs> around this period, he was averaging 20 movies a year. That's a lot. Yeah. Just cranking them out. Six days a week. Katzman followed the trend for science fiction that emerged in the 1950s with the sci-fi crime-revenge thriller Creature with the Atom Brain in 1955. Don't we all technically have atom brains? Yes. Now, this was written by Kurt Siedmak. Okay. And it definitely is just like Kurt Siedmak, like... Given up? No, just like... 
Kurt Seedmack continuing to iterate on like that one sci-fi premise that he's got, where this movie is about an American gangster who hires a Nazi scientist to create an army of zombies resurrected through atomic radiation to get revenge on his old enemies. Okay. So, like, you know, we haven't done the Nazi scientist radioactive zombie army before, but the, like, American gangster something-something-something sci-fi horror thriller to get revenge on his old enemies thing is an idea that C&Mac's been circling for a very long time. Yeah. Just go buy a gun. And every time we watch one of these, we end up deciding it's not horror. So that's why we skipped this one. Then, following that film, came It Came From Beneath the Sea, with a title cribbed from Universal's It Came From Outer Space, and a plot that was cribbed from Beast From 20,000 Fathoms. Now, this movie's real major coup was actually getting Ray Harryhausen to do the special effects. Oh, damn. That's a big get. That film was a smash hit, grossing $1.7 million against a budget of 150000 Because they got Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. The follow-up was the iconic sci-fi film Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Uh, sort of a War of the Worlds riff, again with special effects by Ray Harryhausen. The main thing the movie is remembered for, quite honestly is the design of the flying saucers in it, which sort of became, like, the definitive flying saucer. That picture would end up making $1.25 million at the box office. By this time, Katzman had begun to focus heavily on the burgeoning new teen audience for films. Teens! And incorporated teen-oriented elements into his pictures in order to appeal at, like, drive-ins and, and, you know, small-town theaters where teens would go on dates. Teen-oriented subjects. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, Johnny is two-timing me with Sally down the street. Yeah, also, like... Themes of juvenile delinquency, okay. uh, rebellion against parents. High um, school. Rock and roll. <laughs> surfing. No, we're about, we're, we're still a little early for surfing. Okay. Uh, not that Sam Katzman wouldn't make beach party movies in the 60s, but we're a little early for that. Now, The Werewolf came about because Katzman needed a B picture in order to double feature with Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. Uh, so, why did he make this movie? Well, because he discovered in Columbia's storage the mask used for the werewolf in Return of the Vampire. Oh, damn. And he figured, all right, let's construct a movie around that. The old George Lucas move. (laughs) Hey, I found this in a box. Let's make a movie. I was thinking more, make this an alien. Oh. (laughs) The screenwriters, Robert E. Kent and James B. Gordon, were Katzman regulars who were used to writing scripts in record time. The director, Fred Sears, was born in Boston in 1913, and after a career as a theater director, was hired by Columbia in 1946 as a dialogue coach. So no relation to the American department stories. No, not at all. No, not at all. Now, Sears started acting for Columbia after a few years as well, moving up from bit player to supporting roles. Then by 1949, they started letting him direct feature films, uh, including a long series of westerns, which frequently used footage from previous entries to save money. Katzman was attracted by Sears' cost-cutting measures and uh, brought him over to work in his unit. 
Sears also directed Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. So he directed both halves of this double feature, one of which is a Ray Harryhausen special effects movie. So, like, Sears is operating on a level beyond Roger Corman, who could not make two movies at the same time. (laughs) Earlier, in 1956, Sears and Katzman had made the hugely successful rock and roll musical Rock Around the Clock. which was sort of the first of its kind and a big part of the watershed moment of rock and roll entering into the mainstream. Like Elvis Presley's first number one single, Heartbreak Hotel, was released in January of 56. So we're like just at the cusp of rock and roll becoming a big mainstream thing. Okay. Now, unfortunately, Sears' career was cut short by his death of a heart attack in 1957 at age 45. Because he was making two movies at a time each week? Possibly. The movie is shot by 67-year-old cinematographer Edward Linden, who in 1933 had shot the live-action parts of King Kong and its sequel, Son of Kong, the next year. Okay. So used to working with stop-motion animation. Yeah. Our hero is played by Don McGowan, the 34-year-old college football star and World War II vet who we just saw as the ex-gill man in The Creature Walks Among Us. So this time we get to see his face and he gets to talk. Oh, good for him. Moving up in the world. Exactly. I believe this is the first role he ever had that had a name. His love interest in the movie is 26-year-old actress Joyce Holden, who retired from acting in 1958 after eight years and 13 films when she realized she just wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, So she settled down, got married, and is alive today at age 90. Okay. Our werewolf is played by 31-year-old actor Stephen Rich, who is given an introducing credit in the movie uh, after appearing in several films in bit parts stretching back to 1951. Just like... Don McGowan, this is his first role that has a name. Sure. And probably, you know, trying to set up like, oh, this is going to be like a big horror star. Yeah. With the introducing. He is best known today for his role in The Werewolf. Oh, no. Oh, no. The Earth vs. the Flying Saucers Werewolf Double Feature opened on June 13th, 1956. Reviews were largely positive for the sci-fi picture, and largely negative for the werewolf one. Oh no. That said, later writers would point out that the double feature seems to literally mark a demarcation line when horror began to reassert its popularity over sci-fi. Like, we've been big sci-fi up to now, and then you cross the line of this double feature, and we start getting more and more horror again. Interesting. As well, the film seems to signal the beginning of a slight return of werewolf pictures in the late 1950s. Like, there's just a little mini trend of them after this. Uh, So, you know, there may be something retrospectively here that might prove interesting, even if reviewers at the time couldn't see it. Okay. It's available to rent on YouTube, and it's on DVD in the Icons of Horror Sam Katzman collection from Sony Home Video. Cool. So, listeners, if you would like to watch along, uh, you can find this movie on our YouTube playlist, which you can find on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Werewolf from 1956, directed by Fred Sears. See you on the other side, everybody. What do America's First Serial Killer, a crime-solving parrot, Jimmy Hoffa, and yours truly have in common? We each honed our craft in the great state of Michigan. I'm Jen Carpenter, the host of So Dead, a true crime podcast where I take the cases I cover seriously. Myself? Not so much. If you want to take a deep dive into cases you've never heard before, I'm your girl. Just call me Scuba Jen. No, definitely don't do that. New episodes of So Dead are released on True Crime Tuesdays, and you can find me wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be waiting. So Dead, So Dead. So Dead, So Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Werewolf from 1956, directed by Fred Sears. First thoughts, Ben? Uh, this was good, actually. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. Much better than I was expecting. I think people should go watch this. Yeah, I think it's worth a watch. Yeah, it has some really neat on-location shooting, shooting at night... Really interesting use of, like, sound effects to tell stories. Um, It's, I'm not going to say it's as strong as one of, say, like, Velt Luton's films, especially, like, Cat People, for instance, but it reminded me of, like, when we saw Velt Luton stuff and it was like, oh, people are trying again. Right, yeah, for sure. Especially for, like, something by Sam Katzman from Columbia Pictures, you know, and knowing, like, this was probably shot in six days for, like... Two dollars. Mm, yeah. Fifty dollars? Some, yeah, somewhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand dollars. And, and we've been seeing so many movies like that from your, you know, Roger Corman's and so on, that... It was really surprising to see the high quality of this on a lot of different levels, like, across the board. Yeah. And it just really made me think, like, you know, especially because, like, Fred Sears directed the other half of this double bill. He directed, like, a bunch of other movies with Katzman the same year. So it's not like they had, like, a particularly long amount of time to shoot this or something. And it's not like this was a particular passion project for anyone. So I just wonder if there's, like, a certain base level of competence that you just, like, get to when you're making 20 movies a year. Probably. After, like, 20 years of doing it, too, right? Because, yeah. like, the thing about, you know, a lot of these other folks we've been looking at, uh, like Corman, is they're just starting. Like, they're doing the same, like, I'm going to spend $4 and shoot this in an afternoon, but they've only been doing that for, like, three years. Sam Katzman's been doing that for, like, 20. Yeah. But it also doesn't have the, like, I've been doing this for 20 years. Just pump it out. Who cares? Yeah, it feels like these people were trying to make a good movie. Yeah. That was my, um, 
old man producer with a cigar voice. I don't know if that really came across, but I wanted to like make it clear the persona ah. I was trying to adopt there. Because I really do picture Sam Katzman as like a J. Jonah Jameson type, sure, of, type sure. of figure. Right. I've been doing this for 20 years. Just pump it out. <laughs> there we go. And I think the story is unique for a werewolf picture-ish. It does go back to its roots. Okay. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> we are set in the small mountain town of Mountain Crest. And the movie starts with the narrator talking about the persistence of werewolf myths from the dawn of time. Um, even today in, like, Borneo and, like, other far-off exotic-sounding places, there are stories. Why do they persist? And then we enter into the film. We see a man wandering the streets into the town and goes to a bar, which I love, named Chad's Place. And he seems very confused. Uh, it becomes clear that he's suffering from some form of amnesia. Um, so he leaves the bar after accidentally showing that, like, hey, he happens to have a, a bit of money on him. And so another patron follows him to try and rob him. This uh, local thug named Joe, I believe, takes him into an alley and starts, like, socking him. When suddenly these sound effects turn to growls, and um, clearly that this mysterious man uh, seems to turn into some sort of animal and like is attacking Joe. A woman happens upon the scene and screams, prompting the mysterious man to run off into the forest into the night. And it's clear upon the people who discover the body that Joe has been mauled to death. So the town's deputy with uh, two men from the bar follow this mysterious man into the forest that night. They're following the mysterious man's tracks, and they seem to turn into a two-legged wolf thing. Wolf tracks on two legs. The two men head back to town to go get the sheriff, and in that meantime, the deputy is attacked and gets a bloodied arm. Um, luckily, the sheriff, when he arrives, is able to scare away this animal. So the sheriff takes the deputy to Dr. Gilchrist. Um, here's where we kind of meet our main characters. We have Sheriff Jack Haynes, uh, his fiance Amy, who also happens to be the nurse of her uncle, Dr. Gilchrist. So Dr. Gilchrist has a niece named Amy who is dating the sheriff. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure. Everything's clear. Um, so by this time, Dr. Gail Christ and Amy have had a chance to examine Joe's body. And they're like, yeah, definitely was some sort of animal. But then the deputy is like, well, maybe it sort of seemed like a man animal that attacked me. Um, and so the sheriff's like, I think it's a werewolf, guys. That next morning... We see this mysterious stranger waking up in the woods, and he sees paw prints leading up to where he is. And he's like, no, it was only, it must have just been an animal checking me out. It was only a dream that I had that I turned into a wolf. Like, oh God, what is going on? He's clearly very, very distraught. Wandering through the woods, he finds that police have set up roadblocks to prevent people from coming in and out of town. 
and that there are search parties going on. And he's like, okay, yeah, clearly these guys are looking for me. He does find his way to Dr. Gilchrist. Uh, he sees the doctor sign on the front, and he's like, okay, I need to talk to a doctor. Something's going on. In talking to the doctor and to Amy, he shares that I don't remember my name. I don't remember how I got here. The last thing I remember is a car accident and these two doctors, but I don't know how I'm here and I I know something's wrong. They, uh, Amy does try to give him some, like, pills to calm him down and he, like, freaks out, clearly very untrusting of doctors, and he runs off. Cut to two doctors in the nearby town of, like, Brockville or something? It doesn't matter. Um, Dr. Chambers and Dr. Forrest are their names. And Dr. Forrest is kind of a young, the younger one of the two. He's like, man, I kind of feel bad the way we experimented on this random guy that came to us from a car accident. And Dr. Chambers is like, no, this was the only way to test our irradiated wolf serum to determine if it would actually inoculate against possible nuclear fallout because the world is going to shit dr forrest yeah this this scene in the movie is probably the most wild yeah and kind of like the most not a part of the rest of the movie like totally different tone and a little bit almost, like, hard to follow. It's so ridiculous. Like, yeah. Like, I, I was trying to figure out what exactly their experiment is and what they're trying to do, because it sounds like what Dr. Chambers says is, like, yeah, so nuclear fallout is going to turn everyone into mutants, and they'll be, like, horrible, crazy animal people. Because so, of, like, man's innate anger and fear of the world. Right. So... That's going to be bad, because those mutants will then have more anger and fear and build worse atomic bombs to destroy the world more, to create more anger-fear mutants. And so, we've developed an inoculation to prevent that. Uh, Are we going to give it to the world to save the world? No, because humanity is shitty and isn't worth saving. No, we're going to give it to you and me and probably some hot babes that we pick up in, like, a Craigslist ad and repopulate (laughs) the world with smart, nice people. Um, And the way that we've tested this theory is we've injected this dude with irradiated wolf, question mark, and turned him into a science werewolf. Well, okay, so this man came, was brought to them from, by the police, because there was a, a, a car accident nearby, Um, and for some reason, they were like, this is the perfect opportunity to test our wolf serum stuff. Um, and it appears that the lycanthropy is an unfortunate side effect due to the innate anger and primal side of this man. Yeah, it's hard to follow, man. They, they made, they wanted, they wanted to do like a, let's repopulate the world with the good ones and let everyone else die plan because of nuclear war and they ended up with werewolf and the steps <laughs> the steps in between those the goal and the result are just real kind of foggy for me yeah it's clear like we have a mix of like that 
old school, like I'm talking like wolf blood situation of lycanthropy of like blood transfusions. Right. Because they've got like some animals locked up in cages here. Yeah. And then the writer is mixing that with the like current fear of atomic bombs and mutations. Right. And like the thing about Dr. Chambers that's weird to me is that he talks like he's a James Bond villain. Yeah. In that he's like... Yeah, we're going to, like, inoculate the few good people and everyone else will die. And, like, you know, because we're going to save mankind. And that's why I turned this guy into a science werewolf. Um, but and, and Dr. Forrest is like, well, I think we might have made some mistakes along the way. But I guess we're in this, we're in too deep. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, exactly. But, like, Chambers and Forrest live in, like, a nice mountain cabin in the town of Brockville with, like, a little lab in, like, the garage. Yeah, it's like, this is like their, like, little medical clinic where, like, people will come with, like, oh, I broke my arm. Yeah, this is like finding out that your GP, like, also has a scheme to murder all of mankind except for his friends. Well, he's not going to murder mankind. He's just going to... Not save them. He's Batman. <laughs> Part of what prompts Dr. Forrest to be like, oh, I think we might have made some mistakes here, is because he's visited by Helen Marsh and her son, Chris, who are looking for a Duncan Marsh. Um, he had an automobile accident near here. He was brought to these doctors, and he hasn't been heard from since. Um, have you seen my husband? <laughs> so these doctors didn't even know his fucking name. So our mysterious man is Duncan Marsh, to put those two dots together. Now, these two doctors have heard of the murder in the nearby town of Mountain Crest, and they're like, okay, that must be our dude, because he ran off. Um, if the sheriff kills him, dope, perfect, he's not going to say anything. But if they capture him alive, especially with his wife now in the mix, that's more likely... He might talk and ruin our whole, like, save humanity situation. So let's go try to find Mr. Marsh and kill him first. Right. Let's murder this werewolf before he has a chance to talk. Otherwise, our plan to save us and some friends from nuclear annihilation with werewolf serum will fail. The movie's good. Trust me. Trust us. This is just the most wild part of it. Speaking of Mountain Crest, Amy has convinced the sheriff to use non-lethal force after meeting this mysterious man. Um, They're able to tie, like, okay, this guy must be the dude who's doing things, Um, but he's clearly only a sick man. Like, we don't need to go just shoot him like he's a wild animal. By this time, Chambers and Forrest have also made it to Mountain Crest. They are off uh, looking for Marsh. They find him. And Marsh recognizes them and is like, you bastards, and turns uh, into Wolfman. Uh, Can we say Wolfman or is that copyright by Universal? They definitely say the words Wolfman in the movie a lot, but the movie is called The Werewolf. Okay. Probably for that reason. Yeah. So he turns into his werewolf form where it's just like fuzzy hands and the mask face from Return of the Vampire, um, still in his suit and everything. And he goes to attack Forrest, but gets scared off by a shot from Chambers, which also draws the sheriff's posse over to them. So then they meet the sheriff, and the sheriff has already heard from Amy about, like, 
this mysterious man was talking about two weird doctors. And then these two doctors show up saying, like, yeah, we're here to help because we have some extra information about the man. Uh, so the sheriff is able to put two and two together. And he's like, hey, you guys got to come talk with me. Meanwhile, Helen and Chris have also come to Mountain Crest uh, as Duncan's car was found there. The sheriff arranges for Helen and Chris to stay with Amy and Dr. Gilchrist, and they all try to avoid telling her anything about Marsha's condition. Because what are you going to do? Sit her down and be like, Lady, your husband's a werewolf. No, they just keep saying like, Well, he, he seems to be sick and off on the run, and we're just trying to find him and help him. The sheriff comes up with this plan to use a bear trap to try to catch the werewolf, uh, Werewolf Marsh. Except these bear traps were designed for something that does not have opposable thumbs. Um, And while uh, Marsh does get his leg trapped in one, he's able to break free from it. But now he's injured and limping around. Um, So to go find him, the sheriff brings the deputy, Amy, as a nurse to help Duncan, um, and Helen and Chris to go find Marsh. Um, They find him. There's a, a loving embrace they treat the leg and then take Mr. Marsh back to the jail. Now, the whole town has heard, like, hey, we caught Wolfman. I mean, the werewolf. <laughs> Don't sue us, Universal. Um, he's in the jail. Okay. But that gives Chambers and Forrest an idea. They sneak into the jail to plan to basically inject Marsh with something that's going to murder him. Before they can inject him, Marsh turns into the werewolf and just straight murders them in this jail, just like the camera can't even look, but it's it's the sounds are fairly gruesome. Yeah, it's, but it's like yeah, it's he, good. He tackles them like off frame, and then the camera just keeps looking at the wall while we hear them get murdered off <laughs> off camera. That job done. That part of the plot tied up. He escapes from the jail into the forest. Now the sheriff is like. Ugh, Fuck, he's killed two more men. I don't know what these men were doing here. Clearly something nefarious, because they chloroformed my deputy. But we can't use non-lethal force. We gotta, we gotta kill this guy now. So they get a new posse, track him down, and shoot him to death. The end. The end. Oh, he turns back into human in, in, in death. Right, your standard. Your standard werewolf thing. The end. The end. Yeah, I think... Folks need to go watch this for themselves because I feel like in plot summary you don't really get across the qualities that make this a good movie. I think, like, if I could sum up why, at least from the script level, why this is actually really good (laughs) is a couple of things. One, the story takes place over, like, one to two-ish days in Mm -hmm. the little town of Mountain Crest. Like, it's clear that Duncan had his car accident, like, maybe two days ago, Mm -hmm. was mutated, Mm -hmm. ran off, and is now in this town, and the town story takes place over, like, two nights. Yeah, like, I think we start on night one, then we spend, like, he's captured during, like, by night two. Yeah. Then he gets loose. And then they, like, kill him on day two. Yeah. So it's a a tight timeline, which helps focus the film. We're we're just focused on the Mountain Crest stuff, really. Yeah, yeah. Like, we get some stuff with the mad scientists, um, but, like, one scene to set up, like, 
how a werewolf was made in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, to kind of, like, lampshade that a bit. But, like, we don't care really about the motivations. We're not sticking with the mad scientists through the whole movie like we would with, like, a traditional universal mad scientist movie. The story is focused on Duncan Marsh being a werewolf and the sheriff having to go put him down. Right. And like the sort of moral quandary of, well, but he's human, right? And he has a wife and a kid and he's just like this sad, scared dude. So can you put him down or can you bring him in alive? And it's like, right, but he's also a werewolf. (laughs) You made a really fun comment during the movie of like, I'm not a werewolf. I don't care. Yeah, kind exactly. Of fugitive thing. Yeah, because it's, it's kind perfect. of the, the movie's kind of got a bit of a fugitive feel uh, for parts of it. Um, this is, I think, our first like science werewolf. Um, That's not true. What would you say? Um, there was that one with George Zuko wanting to make werewolf soldiers to fight Nazis, and he did it through blood transfusions. Oh, okay. This is definitely the first like mutation atomic energy yeah thing. we're trying to tie into the other sci-fi flavors of the 50s which does make the opening narration that's like there have always been legends of werewolves going back to ancient times kind of weird because like <laughs> that sort of narration is supposed to set up like yeah of course werewolf folklore is true it's been around forever but this isn't a folkloric werewolf this is an atomic radiation nuclear war mutant inoculation werewolf. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um because yes, like like they talk about lycanthropy, not necessarily the mental condition of thinking that you're a wolf, but the literal like you turn into a wolf as being the mythological side of it, um, or mythical side of it. Um and yeah, that's just a side effect of our inoculation. That you turn into a werewolf. Yeah, the myth stuff doesn't really end up mattering. Because the thing about being a science werewolf is Marsh is closer to the Incredible Hulk than yeah. the Wolfman. I mean, he's almost like a sort of middle step between Lawrence Talbot and Bruce Banner. He's got the same pitiful, on-the-run doesn't know where to turn, you know, kind of thing that Larry Talbot and Bruce Banner have. But unlike Larry Talbot, he doesn't change with the moon. You don't need silver. He's just a dude. He can be a werewolf during the day. You can shoot him full of bullets. And more akin to Bruce Banner, he transforms as like an emotional response. It's not necessarily when he's angry. It's more like when he's threatened. Yeah, which, like, totally fair. Sure, man. Corner an animal, they're going to turn on you. Yeah, I think one thing that I think is really great with the werewolf and makes it different from the previous werewolf movies we've had between now and 1941's The Wolfman is it shows that the werewolf pity shtick, the sympathetic character uh, being the main focus, doesn't need to be tied to Lon Chaney. Right. Um, Because any other time that we've had a werewolf movie, 
it's been very much like, yeah, kind of like empathetic, but the focus has been on the mad scientist or like not on the werewolf and his like very sad existence. And related to that, Stephen Rich, who plays Duncan Marsh and the werewolf, is very good at doing that despair and paranoia uh, act that he has to do. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think Stephen Rich is the MVP of the cast, uh, you know, really doing the tortured soul routine very well. But I actually think, with one notable exception, everyone in the cast is good here. Like, they all play their roles as well as or better than they need to. Like, the actress who plays Duncan's wife, when she's, like, trying to call him on the megaphone, and she's, like, just barely holding back tears and stuff. Like, it's really good. Yeah. At one point, Stephen Rich is crying Mm -hmm. with, like, I don't know what's going on with me. Yeah. Uh, The woman, the actress who plays Amy, Joyce Holden, she's really good. Okay. She was the one exception for me. I thought she was really flat. Well, she's trying... She basically has to be the conscience Mm -hmm. of the film. Um, And I thought she did a pretty good job of that without coming off as, like, preachy. Huh. Yeah, I liked everyone except for her, and I think my reaction to her was like, okay, yeah, I see why you quit acting. Oh, no! Um, Don McGowan? Yeah. He was really good. There were a couple times where he reminded me of Lon Chaney, but I think it was just his size and his voice, the sure. tenor of his voice. Um, but he was really good as a sheriff. I think he would have been, like, a really good, like, cowboy in, oh, like, the Western. yeah, yeah. He definitely has that kind of, like, flavor to him. Yeah. Not quite, like, as, like, morally upright as, like, a John Wayne. Mm. But I think he he would have been a very good, like, humanistic cowboy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think he could have done, like, High Noon really well. Yeah. None of the people in this movie, like, Joyce Holden is, like, movie star level good looking. Um, but everybody else, because they're like lower level actors and character actors and B-movie actors and nobodies, have this really distinct advantage of looking like real people. Yes. And that ties into one of this movie's biggest strengths, which is that like they shot it all on location in like a real mountain town. Yes. You can tell that, like, they went up into the mountains, found, you know, a a mountain town, shot it all there, because, like, you know, the exterior scenes in the town along, like, Main Street or whatever, like, look very real. They do a lot of, like, night and day shooting in a way that, like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a studio backlot. Yeah, exactly. Everything feels very real and authentic, which helps, like make the story effective because again, and I've talked about this on the show before, I think it's really effective to have a film with like fantastical elements in it. If you can ground everything else. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can tell that it's like, you know, not even the interiors for the most part are sets like the town jail looks like a real small town jail from 1956. It doesn't look like the same damn Wild West movie, you know, town jail that gets used in everything. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? It doesn't look like a movie set town jail. Chad's place mm. looks like a real bar. Right. The people look like they belong in this mountain town. They're dressed like people in a mountain town dress, like the costumes are spot on. Uh, the werewolf was definitely sponsored by the padded plaid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like these people look like they belong. Um, even there's like a uh, there's a town drunk that's one of the most believable town drunks I've ever seen in a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about the script being really tight. I think it's also like very well structured in that we start with, like, a really dynamite opening of, like, who's this mysterious guy and what's his deal? And then, as you said, we stick primarily with the townsfolk. Um, We follow the manhunt. And, you know, only occasionally does the movie kind of reveal its B-movie nature by having, like, a lot of multiple iterations of the sheriff's posse chasing Marsh and then being like, well, I guess we give up for today. But we're going to just do the same thing tomorrow. So I don't know why we couldn't have made the all one thing. But anyways, for the most part, it's really well structured. Yep. And I think, you know, you see, like, the movie starts when the story's interesting, ends when the story stops being interesting. It knows how to, like, really up the drama. Like, you know, compared to Larry Talbot, Marsh has, like, a wife and kid. That ups the drama. Yeah. Our, our sheriff is conflicted about what he needs to do, right? Like, these characters are a little bit, just like a little bit better than just being the stock archetype characters that they're based on, right? And I appreciated that we see the sheriff come to, like, the doctor and to be like, I have a plan to use a bear trap. Is this going too far, given that it's a dude? Right. And, like, has these discussions... Not necessarily on screen, but it's, like, more than just, like, I'm the sheriff, and this is the next thing we are doing in the plot. Yeah, and, like, you know, yes, the sheriff is inclined to hunt down and shoot the werewolf, and yes, Amy is inclined to be like, no, don't. But, like, that discussion reads as, like, well, you know, everyone in the town is in danger, Amy, and and if this guy gets loose, like, he might kill more people. And Amy's like... Oh, but he's just, like, a sad, sick man. If you had seen him as I seen him, like, try to take him alive. And the sheriff being like, well, you know, if if he lets us take him alive, absolutely. But, like, if he starts to attack us, we're going to have to shoot. Which is, like, you know, fine. But I'm so used to these conversations in these B-movies being more akin to, we're going to shoot that werewolf full of holes, and then I'm going to mount his head on my wall. And then, <laughs> no, don't. He's just misunderstood. Ow, oh, you're just a stupid woman. We're going to kill him but good. You know? like Kill just, him but good. Like, really way more extreme and stereotyped and less human versions of these conversations. Yeah, less human is definitely the key thing there. Um, no pun intended with it being a werewolf movie. <laughs> Even after the werewolf, like, escapes from the jail, um, the sheriff's like, I'm sorry, Amy, like, he's killed two more people. Like, I can't not use as much force as necessary to bring him in now. I really appreciated that, like, we don't spend a ton of time convincing people it's a werewolf. Like, you know, the guy gets killed at the start, the deputy gets mauled, the sheriff goes to the doctor and is like, Doc... What is it? And the doctor's like, well, these are all clearly injuries from a wild animal. 
And the deputy's like, nah, he was wearing like a suit and stuff, walking upright <laughs> like a man. And, you know, the doctor's like, well, that's impossible. You must have seen something because this can't be both a man and an animal. And the sheriff's like, or could it though? What if it's a werewolf? And everyone's like, those don't exist. And the sheriff's like, hey man, listen. I'm just putting the facts together. Right. <laughs> but like, yeah, we don't spend a ton of time with people like digging their heels about like, oh, it can't possibly be. Like, they're like, like this whole town sort of looks at each other and goes, yeah, this probably is a werewolf. Like, we've seen movies. Like, <laughs> Which I mean, you could go one route and be like, oh, the superstitious, like, rural town... Mm quick to believe except no it is a werewolf <laughs> right like it doesn't come off as just like that they're like superstitious because this isn't a thing where like a bunch of people come into the town from outside being like we heard there was a murder and the townsfolk are like yes it was the werewolf and everyone being like that's weird like no it's the townsfolk themselves being like huh so you're telling me that a guy in a suit and shoes walking around with fur and teeth and claws killed some people like an animal. Sounds like a werewolf to me. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. I think the only criticism I have of the script, honestly, is that once Marsh escapes from jail after killing Chambers and Forrest, we never see the wife and kid again. Yeah, that's because they've, like, left town because, like, they're going back home. Yeah, and they um, assume like at that point that, like, Marsh is, like, gonna get sent to, like, a hospital to yeah. get taken care of and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's not like a loose end that isn't tied up, um, but you're definitely right. Yeah, I feel like there would have been more drama if, in addition to getting riddled with bullets like he's fucking Warren Beatty at the end of Bonnie and Clyde, <laughs> uh, if, like, then, you know, the movie had ended with his wife, like, kneeled down by his dead body being like, why? You know? For sure. Hey, speaking of the fact that it's, like, not a traditional werewolf, mm -hmm. uh, the deputy doesn't turn. Right, yeah, because it's not, like, a... It's, it's not a rabies situation. It's... He got irradiated yeah. by these doctors. Yeah, it's... it's. Listen, it's kind of, you know... This is the werewolf movie for the anti-vaxxer crowd. Oh, uh... I don't want to position this movie as that... <laughs> The lighting and use of shadow is really good Oh, here. yeah. The cinematography is top-notch. The sound effects, as I said, uh, the fact that we're on location, we're shooting during the night. So, like, I think it shows a lot of, like, effort being put in. And even the mask itself, like, yeah, it's just a mask on a dude in a suit. And it's the mask from Return of the Vampire. It's very identifiable. But the the makeup around the mask, like, around the eyes, around the mouth... Um, they're trying. Yeah, there's some holes in the makeup, most notably his neck. Like, his whole <laughs> neck is just normal human. Uh, but, you know, they've got his hands done up, and they've melded the mask into his face pretty well. And, like, you know, around the mouth in addition to the eyes. And Oh, lots like, of drooling. Yeah, he, like, drools and shit, like, yeah. which is incredible it, and looks great. <laughs> it's not to the level of, like... Alien with KY Jelly, but no, like, but it's, it's it's good. Yeah, it's much more like animalistic than what we've seen from like previous werewolf movies. They do, you know, some passable attempts at the lapse dissolve transformation thing. Yeah, um, the the dissolving part is a little rocky, but it's really interesting to see the stages of 
what they're doing with the makeup. Yeah, um, for sure. Because, again, I think it's showing that they're putting in effort. Yes. And, like, Rich is giving it his all with his performance as the werewolf, drooling, snarling, running around on all fours. Like, he's doing a pretty good job. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of good effort here. The cinematography is really moody, is yeah. how I would describe it. There's a lot of, like, not lighting people, like, just le- letting people be, like, silhouettes in shadow. A lot of, like, interesting shot choices. Like, the movie looks way better than the kind of, like, flat army training film style that I have gotten used to from these kinds of B-movies. Yeah, and, like, the fact that they weren't afraid to not show when Marsh is attacking the doctors. Mm. Um, So we're looking at a wall, and there's, like, the silhouette of the jail bars on the wall. Um... But, I mean, like, you're hearing, like, these crazy screams from both the werewolf and the doctors. Like, uh, it's it's pretty, like, it's a lot. And um, even, like, in the first attack when um, Joe gets got, um, they did a really interesting thing of, like, they're in the alleyway. Joe is, like, punching him and Duncan goes down. And then we cut to a, a shot where it's, like, the camera's on the ground and we see the two men's boots and clearly like joe is on top of marsh just punching him and then we hear the snarl start and kind of like guttural sounds and slowly like the boots trade spots in terms of who is on top of who Mm -hmm. and it's just like a really neat way to be like joe's getting attacked yeah absolutely and like yeah there's tons of stuff like that through the whole movie like yes this is a b movie and i think one of the more telling parts about that is shooting on location. A lot of times like they're using on location sound and they aren't like mixing it well from one shot to another. So a lot of the like background noise will shift suddenly from like shot to shot. And so there's that kind of feel to it. Like you can tell that this was done on a low budget in not a lot of time, but it's done really well for that, you know, for those conditions. When something is done with not a lot of time, as we've said in the past, they don't usually take the time, or they don't usually have the time to do some of these more interesting shots. Yeah, so, like, this just really speaks, I think, to the experience of the people making the movie, in that, like, they're pulling off interesting, good shots quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben... Let's move on to ranking. For sure. Before we do, I'll just point out that we have The Wolfman at number 22, which I believe is our highest ranking werewolf movie. And then our lowest ranking one is Wolf Blood at 169. <laughs> nice. Where were you looking between that range? <laughs> well, Sarah, you might be, like, a little annoyed with me. And we'll see what your range is. Because... I ended up just sort of finding a spot for this that felt right to me. Oh. Based on that feel of like, oh, this was much better than I thought. Which is 46, below the black sleep, and above the creature walks among us. Which is fine, except that uh, today's episode is episode 190. The black sleep was 189, and the creature walks among us is 188. So that's just like the past three episodes, sort of all in a group there but that's what felt right to me okay 
Well, when I started looking, I started at The Return of the Vampire. Fair. Um, which is at number 25. And I think, like, the, the Return of the Vampire is this high because it's, like, Bella Lugosi getting to do a Dracula shtick. We have, like, a weird werewolf subplot, and it's, like, set in Britain during World War Two, and Bella gets got by the Blitz. Right. Which is fun. But I was like, you know, this, the werewolf is pretty fun, too. So it could, it could replace Return of the Vampire at 25 for me. And then I started looking down... And, like, there's really strong contenders in here, so it's tough. But then I got to The Seventh Victim at 36, and I was thinking about the way that the doomed figure of, I don't remember the character's name, but the woman in that movie, mm-hmm. and comparing that performance to Stephen Rich's as the werewolf, and I feel like Stephen Rich is able to be, like, a bit more intense about the despair and paranoia and all of that. So I kind of had that as my floor. So 25 to 36. So that means there's 10 spots between your floor and my pick, which makes the midpoint there number 41, the maze, which, to be honest, is kind of as high as I would put this, is above the maze. Because I see what you're saying about the seventh victim, um, but, like, below Seventh Victim, there's The Uninvited, there's uh, White Reindeer, there's uh, House of Wax, Queen yeah. of Spades. Like, stuff that I really feel is a lot stronger than The Werewolf. Sure. Um, whereas, like, you know, I could put this above The Maze. I think where I get hung up on is Dementia at 44, which is a hard movie to rank other things against. Because, like, this is a B-movie that's putting the work in as compared to an indie movie that is sort of a unique artistic expression. So that's really hard for me. Um, so I think I think the highest I'm willing to go is below Queen of Spades, above the maze. I think that's fair. Um, because, yeah, I, I did have a very hard time ranking this. Um, and I think 41 replacing the maze is a good uh, compromise. Okay. So then entering the list at the new number 41 is The Werewolf from 1956, directed by Fred Sears. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can listen to us on your podcasting app of choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Mention us to a friend, either uh, from six feet away or online, or head on to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to special bonus content, 
And if we reach our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to start looking at horror-adjacent movies uh, once a month as special bonus episodes. We've got a special preview of what that might be like up on the Patreon right now for our patrons with a special episode on Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So check that out over at patreon.com slash Podcast. And hey, speaking of background noise being a plague on the werewolf, uh, just want to apologize for the background noise in today's episode. We are working on it. I promise. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah. We are headed to Japan. Oh. For a film directed by Masaki Mori and starring Tomosaburu Wakayama, best known for playing the lead role in the Lone Wolf and Cub series of movies in the 1970s. Oh, dope. It is 1956's Yatsuya Kaiden. But we determined Yatsuya Kaiden... That version of Yatsuya Kaiden. From 1949. Yeah, we said that wasn't horror. That version of Yatsuya Kaiden. And this one definitely is? There are like a million different versions of Yatsuya Kaiden. Okay, okay, okay. Cool, and it's, cool, cool. it's normally a ghost story. You may recall that... The 49 version turned it into more of like a, it's all in his head yeah. kind of thing, right? Okay, cool. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. Uh, so don't miss it, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.